0: Now, last week, as you know, uh, we looked at some great key verses and principles uh, on our oneness together. You know, we have been building every week. And Proverbs is an incredible book because, as we know, it really gives us the wisdom that we need to have in life. And I think you're going to see that today. Every week it's been kind of from a different dimension. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I just love the laying out the principles that really... Tell us what we have as a church. And there isn't one person, certainly in me, it isn't one person here that makes this thing what it is. You know what it is? It's the book you got in your lap today. Yeah. That book makes the difference. And I want to talk about that a little bit later on today. But last week we talked about the oneness that we have in Christ. You know, in the Old Testament nation of Israel, they are called God's son, but they're called in a corporate sense as a nation. The nation was God's son. There was no individual sons of God uh, in the Old Testament. That was a nation. But that's not true in the New Testament. The difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God uh, is simply that you and me as an individual have a oneness with Christ. And uh, within that oneness, you have everything that uh, God wants uh, you to have, or you can have everything that God wants you to have. And then we talked about how that once we understand the oneness that we have in Christ, then we understand the next level would be the oneness that we have with each other. Uh, we talked about the band of, of the brotherhood between Israel and Judah last week and how that the devil's attack was to destroy that. And it actually says that he breaks the band. Uh, you know, and you know, we, we, we talked about how that, that bond between us, the band that we have, You know, back in the 1990s, there was a miniseries that came out. I think Tom Hanks put it out that, as far as I'm concerned, it's probably one of the best uh, miniseries on World War II that you could ever hope to find, and it was called simply the Band of Brothers. A little bit later, they came out with the uh, same scenario. What they did is they followed, in the first one, Band of Brothers, it was Easy Company at a 506th 101st Airborne Division, and they started out in Tioga, Georgia there, and then went all the way through to the end of the war in Austria. And it followed them all the way through from the beginning, the middle, all the heartaches and everything that they went through. A little bit later on, four or five years later, they made the same scenario uh, uh, on the Pacific War, with the, which was simply called the Pacific. Each one of them ran 10, 10 miniseries or 10 segments Uh, And they were just some of the most incredible things that you're ever going to watch. I'd encourage your parents uh, to have your sit down with your children and watch both of those. They absolutely give you an understanding of the price that was paid for the freedom that that we have that we're not speaking German today or Japanese. And in that series, one of the things that came through, and there was a number of things, it showed how that combat and men going through combat were forged together for the rest of their lives, and how that they had a bond together that, that most people couldn't understand. And it also showed how that a person who was never in combat could never grasp it or never understand what they had. These guys, 75 years later, 60 years later, still held that bond of what they went through together. And I've often thought, you know, that's how Christianity should be. It should be the exact same way. Bible says that when you become one with Christ and you understand that oneness, and then we, as our church here, have that oneness together, that we are brothers, as Proverbs 17 17 says, that are born for adversity. Amen, amen. And through those tough times, through that spiritual warfare, together, helping each other, like we talked about last week, the hearty counsel that we, we give each other. Uh, you know, you and me together in a common cause. And that common cause being the cause of Christ, it, it builds something, and it builds a bond, and it builds a unity. And I realize that many people out there would, and I, I say this all the time: our church is not for everybody. I get that, and people will come in and look around and they'll say, you know, the, the, I this is not what I'm looking for. And I understand that. <clears throat> I made it, never made it. I made it abundantly clear since I began preaching that I'm not looking for everybody. I'm looking for that person that will become part of that, that that bond becomes part of their world and part of their life. Because at the end of the day, with all the fun things we do, we have a job to do for the Lord. Amen. And everything we've done today to this point, <clears throat> all the fun stuff with the announcements and the kids and, you know, and they're important to me. They're important to all of us, the, the guys up here playing and just having a great time It's all a means to an end. And the end is, right here, we're going to talk about the Word of God and how it will impact and change your life. You know, and last week we talked about, in verse 9, I talked about the ointment and the perfume. And I told you how that in this book of Song of Solomon, our relationship with Christ is likened to a garden. And I made the reference back to the Garden of Eden how much a beautiful place that was with the smells and the aromas and all of those things. And, and back then, before the fall, Adam and Eve had an incredible relationship with God in that garden. There was no sin. There was no problems, no tornadoes, no hurricanes, no sickness, no disease, no funeral homes. Everything was just absolutely perfect. And in a spiritual sense, even though we live in a world that has fallen now, in your oneness with Christ, you can still have that Garden of Eden relationship. Right. And it's the smells that, uh, that really, you know, one time Mary, <coughs> she took a, a pound of ointment, very costly, and she anointed the feet of Jesus. And not only did she put it on his feet, then the Bible says that she used her own hair to wipe his feet. And the Bible says that the odor filled the whole house. And that's a beautiful picture of what we should have here and what we do have here is that when you take what God has given you and then you get personally involved with it, the odor of that beautiful smell fills the house and everybody smelled it. And of course, in every church you'll have the Martha's. And Martha didn't like the aspect that it was a wasted, needed did Judas, that it was wasted, uh, you know. And, and, uh, but you always have people like that. But Mary, where Martha is running around doing all the things, busy things that Christians do, Mary is where each of us need to be in our oneness with Christ. She's at the feet of Jesus. And that is the beautiful picture. And, you know, and it's us today blending our garden together. Blending our garden together in this church to give off the sweet savor of Christ to a lost world. And for those who are maybe looking for the truth and they really want to build a relationship with God. I mean, life is simple. You either have the sweet smell of spices and the flowers or you have the stink weed of the wandering Christian in the world. But it's what it is. And last week also, we talked about the aspect of wandering, didn't we? wandering from the place that God has for you. And I showed you how that, that in the Old Testament, that was Jerusalem. And boy, we laid that out for you in John chapter 14. And then how that for you and for me, it's the church that God has for you where is the uh, institution that God has designed, Acts chapter 11, by which you get everything that you need. And you know, <clears throat> today... Christians are wandering simply because churches are wandering. Churches today have wandered away from the doctrine that made the church great and really is the teachings of the Word of God. You know, Hosea chapter 8, verse 12 talks about a time in Israel's history that really mirrors where we're at today. And it says that Israel had come to the place that they had lost the Word of God so much that the great things of God had now become strange things to them. And that is so true of the church today. There was a time when around the turn of the century before that the great teachings of the God and the Bible that really, you know, were solid things that you could build on, now people look at them or you talk about them and they they actually think you're nuts or you're crazy because they become strange to them. We've certainly wandered away from from music out of Colossians chapter 2. The Bible says in Colossians chapter three, the Bible says in Colossians chapter three to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And the Bible makes it very clear there that it's the word of Christ dwelling in you that produces the music that you sing. And we've lost that. We've wandered from that. We got them breakdancing on the stage now. we got rock bands for Jesus. We got all of the things that, that the world puts into their world that once there was a clear line between churches and the world, now those lines are blurred, wandering away from the preaching of the truth. Second Corinthians chapter four verse two says, "Not handling the word of God deceitly, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in, in the sight of God that's that's what we talked about last week. That was the, the emphasis of, of the oneness that we have. And I tell you that because today uh, we're going to look at a couple of more verses and we're going to build on last week and we're going to keep this thing moving as we come through uh, chapter 27 and you know, ultimately through the whole book of Proverbs. And I want to, for you, put a clear picture together of who we are in Christ and, and our purpose in life uh, once that God has saved us. And what we need to be, most importantly, to each other after we are saved. Now, I want to read Proverbs chapter 27, verses 11 and 12. And then when I'm done, Paul, I want you to ask God's blessing on the service this morning. But here's what it says. It says, My son, be wise and make my heart glad, (coughs) that I may answer him that reproacheth me. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Paul. Glorious oh, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to come to your worship house, Lord. I was glad when they said, Let us go to your house. Lord. <coughs> Lord, I just ask you to open our ears and our hearts up to what Pastor Bob has on his heart to give us, Lord. Help us to be more than just hearers of the word us, and yours. We'll be sure to give you praise and glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Now, verse 11 says, My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him that reproveth me. Now, we know from all of our times in the Bible that fundamentally there's three applications to the Bible. There'll always be a historical application, which means that the Bible actually is a historical fact or record of something that transpired. We know that there's what we call and what has been called the doctrinal application which means that it has a future reference to, a, to prophecy. Uh, most of the Old Testament is, doctrinally, is future events that are recorded in a historical thing, but the beauty of the Word of God is how they foreshadow things that are going to happen. And then we know that uh, there's an inspirational application. And that means that within everything in the Bible, and I say this all the time, not all the Bible is written directly to you, but all the Bible is written for you. And there's things that may not be written exactly to you, but you can learn from them and apply them in a practical way or what we call or has been called the inspirational application. So with that in mind, when we look at verse 11, historically, we know when he says, my son, we know that that will be Solomon's own son, Rehoboam. And you'll find all about him in 1 Kings chapter 12. And he was a disappointment to his father. And he certainly was not one of the wiser men of the Bible and not somebody you'd want to follow. In fact, he sets into play the final act that is going to destroy the nation of Israel some four or 500 years later, and that is when he splits the kingdoms. Now, doctrinally, all of this will be dealing with the Jew going through the tribulation period. Uh, and you see, uh, as we look down through here, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, certainly in Revelation 17 and 18, in Revelation chapter 14 and 15, you see that this is exactly uh, what is going on. We know from the Bible that key words and phrases, when you talk about the doctrinal application or even the inspirational, historical too, it's the key words or the phrases that you want to find that always will signify something in the Bible. And, uh, you know, it will always give you the context. And here, in a doctrinal sense, when you looked at last week, the day of calamity, anytime time you find a day of calamity in the Bible, it's going to be the tribulation period. Uh, in verse 13, we're not going to get there today, but in verse 13, it talks about a strange woman. Well, that's the woman of Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 7. You know, uh, it's, uh, we, in verse 12, it talks about evil being seen before uh, it gets to you and you hide from it. Well, that'll be Matthew chapter 23 and 24. We've talked about that before. And then if you couldn't miss all of those, then in verse 18, it talks about the fig tree. And we know from Matthew chapter 24 that the fig tree is the nation of Israel. It's the tree that Jesus cursed because it didn't bear any fruit. And we know it's got to go through the tribulation before it bears fruit, Matthew chapter 24. So all this is dealing from a doctrinal sense with Daniel's 70th week. I don't take the time to get into all that because we talk about it all the time, but I want you to know, for some of you who are detailing out the book of Proverbs as we go through this, I want you to be able to understand how these things fit in these three applications. And we know now that from our time in Proverbs, this son will be the nation of Israel in a corporate sense, like we said earlier. And you find that in Exodus chapter 4 where God says, "My son, have I called out of Egypt." He's talking about Israel, not a particular person. And uh and and you know, and we know that as the nation of Israel, some will be wise and make their father glad, and some will be foolish and follow the antichrist to their destruction and they, they'll displease their father. And this is found again in Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 10 where you have the ten virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. So that's the historical and that's the doctrinal. Now, we want to focus on, for you and for me, the inspirational, in a practical way. We see it as wisdom to us as God's son. You know, uh, Israel as a nation in a corporate sense, as I said, will be dealing with the kingdom of heaven, a literal, literal kingdom. But you and I, in an in a individual spiritual sense, we know that that's the kingdom of God. It's the difference between God dealing in the Old Testament and God doing in the New Testament. And what I've always found interesting is that when God makes a direct admonition to us, there's places in the Bible where he'll say, he that hath ears, let him hear. And I've always found that he's drawing our attention to something. And in here in verse 11, it, it talks to us, it tells us that we are, to, uh, we are to focus on making God's heart glad by following wisdom. And it says, a wise son who follows wisdom makes the heart of his father glad. Now, in a physical sense, and we want to examine this all the way through, in a physical sense, both fathers and mothers, you, you, you know, you parents, me as a parent. We want our children to follow wisdom. Many times they don't. And we want our children to make good choices. Many times they don't. And we have to enter into corrective mode and in a disciplined mode to keep that going. And just because your child makes one bad choice or several bad choices growing up doesn't mean that they're They're going to wind up, you know, uh, in league with the Antichrist and move to North Korea and become a Kim Jong guy over there. It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, The Bible makes it very clear that you today, right now, are building, need to build a foundation in your child's life. And, And then when that foundation is built, there are going to be tests for them. There's going to be times that they fail those tests. There's going to be times that they pass those tests. And let's be honest. When they pass those tests, your heart is glad. When they fail those tests, your heart is sad. It's just life. I mean, it's just the way that it is. But the Bible makes it very clear that we set our children on a course of wisdom or foolishness. Uh, Psalms chapter 127 verse 4 says, As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Just as a guy can take a bow and arrow and put an arrow in a bow and shoot that at a target, and launch it out, it's going to hit a target someplace. We do that with our children. When we have our children in life, the things that we teach them, the foundations that we build in their life, the things that we instill in their lives, is going to launch them on a course. And, and, I, and I want you to listen to me today because there is no question in my mind, and there shouldn't be none in yours today, that the great attack of the devil today is on a family. Amen. And the devil wants to destroy your child. And I'm going to say this too. In most cases, there are a few exceptions to this, but not many. In most cases with your child, you got one chance to get it right. Right. You may not get two. So you better understand that how important what he's saying here about a wise son making his father glad. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. We'll get to it as we uh, will be already preached on this one. Back in chapter twenty-two, it says, "Train up a child in a way he should go." Um, if you don't mind me paraphrasing here, you'll find this in the Bob's International Version: "Train up a child in a way he should go, or don't train up, and away he'll go." Amen. But that's how it works. And a good parent will set his child on a course in life with a good foundation, and then he'll have solid principles of life uh, that lays out before him that later on others as he grows up, and God can build on those things. Uh, And I told you before, when you have children, you don't, from the Bible standpoint, you don't raise children. You raise rabbits, you raise corn, but you train children. It's a process, and I've given it to you many times, and we're certainly not gonna go through it today, the five stages of training for your child that'll bring them right to where uh, you want them to be. And you know, the church, us, God's true only institution in this life, should be here to help you. Most churches and I'm, I'm, as a pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm really it distresses me to even say this, but it is true. most churches do exist to use you. They want something from you. They're not interested in giving you what you need, but they are sure interested in getting from you what they need. And that never works. Certainly not biblical. The Bible in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, is an absolute guarantee that your child will be by your side in ministry together if you build that foundation and build those stages in your life. Barring the fact that they're going to have some issues. I have parents all the time, you know, I, I see them, they're really good parents, they're doing a great job with their kids, and their kids will have a little hiccup or burp, and the first thing, you know, that they think of is they're going to go join a witch cult someplace and be part of the Antichrist. Well, that's not necessarily true. Kids are going to have issues. What is important is not focus on the issues because they're always going to have them. What is important is focus on what foundation you're building. That's the key. And God, uh, you know, uh, parenting uh, to the, uh, to your children will be godly parents living the truth first, then teaching the truth second. Most parents will negate the first. They won't live the truth, but they'll, they'll want to treat, teach the truth and the child sees right through that. If you're going to teach it, you have to live it first. Now, I'm saying you're not going to be perfect and you're going to make some mistakes. I personally think that mistakes are helpful because when you make a mistake, if you're honest and you tell your kid you made a mistake and that's for it builds that bond that you want. When you're a parent, you don't always want to be right with your child. You know, there are some parents that, that, that with their child, their child grows up thinking their mom and dad is never wrong. And you know, simply in life, that's not true. I know in my life, there's been plenty of times I've been wrong. And you've got to have the grace and the ability when you blow it and your kids, <laughs> they know you blew it. Pretending that you didn't blow it is not the way to do it. You'll build a better bond and get it together when you be honest with them because they'll feel better of telling you when they blew it if you're honest when telling them when they blew it. And that's just, that's just the way it works. And a good solid New Testament Bible-believing church is needed to reinforce what you teach your kids. I want to make it clear. This church is not here to get your kids where God needs them to be. Now, we have to do that sometimes because parents fail, or we get kids that don't have any parents at all, like many of you, and we have to become the spiritual parent. I'm okay with that, and I understand that. But I'm not, I'm talking about the fact that God's design was for the mom and dad, the family, to be the instrument by which God did everything uh, through that kid that they needed. And the church then was there to reinforce. That's my job. That's our job. I talked a couple of weeks ago, I think it was last week, about or maybe a week before last, of being uh, known the state of your flocks. A pastor needs to understand where his people are, where the families are, what the kids need, that they can come to him and he can cookie cut for them exactly what they need because, you know, every child's different. And when a child in your family turns out to follow wisdom and make good choices, it makes your heart glad. It does. And when he doesn't, it, it breaks your heart. And again, doctrinally, it's God and his son Israel, wise and foolish, in Practical application, it's you and me as God's son breaking his heart. And then another practical application, it's your own children that you have and, and them uh, breaking your heart by not following wisdom or making your heart glad. Now, now, let me be clear here. When it comes to your children, and I want to be very clear about this, when it comes to your children, uh, there's many things that will make your heart glad with your kids, proud of them, and, and, and that should be. I, I love the times that we bring people up here and we talk about the special things that we, our children do. I think that is so important. I, I, I don't ever want our children to get lost in the shuffle. I want, every, I want them to know how important they are. I want them to know that they are the future of this church. And if we just all focus on what we're doing and where we're going, someday the church is going to fall apart because we're not looking to the ones that are going to lead it someday. So I think when your kid goes through school achievements, I think that's wonderful. When they get special awards, I think that's great. I think that, you know, we make a lot about sports around here because so many kids are involved in football and basketball and, you know, soccer and and baseball and track and and, and in music and in, you know, getting into the honor society or the the arts or, or whatever that. And I think all of those are incredibly important to a child. I I really do. I think when they're done right, it becomes a balance in their development. You know, one of the things I like about sports, uh, and I enjoy making a big deal about when you do, but you know, the greatest thing I I like about sports is the fact that sports teach you that you don't always win. Because we live in a society that we teach that if you don't win all the time, there's something wrong. In fact, <clears throat> that's gotten so bad that in many of the sports things, they want to give everybody a trophy. You know, you come in dead last and you get a trophy for dead last or whatever you do. You know, you know it's, it's like we've lost a lot of values in our society. You know, during the Vietnam War, that was a very unpopular war. I remember flying home and being in an airport in my uniform and somebody would come up and spit on you. Or oh, they'd make fun of you. Guys were burning their draft cards. You guys don't even know what a draft card is. They were moving to Canada. Uh, they were they were totally against the war, very unpopular war. And years later, when <clears throat> this country kind of came back to itself a little bit, they saw the value of that. And now today. We we honor Vietnam veterans with a with a passion and, and 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 rightly so, and you know Korea was a great forgotten war. Nobody wanted to even talk about that. It came along too quickly after the last big one, and World War Two vets <coughs> were you know were recognized because that war was clearly defined as a, a world war. But Vietnam was lost in the in the shuffle, so to speak. We kind of regained that <coughs> when we. In the 90s, got into the Gulf War, and now we're over in Iraq and the Middle East, and we're in braids in a war over there. But what we did (coughs) is we we went so far left in the Vietnam lore that we hated soldiers and anybody with the military. Now we've swung the other way, and we've lost a great value. Before, we hated everybody. Today, everybody who wears a uniform is a hero. And you know, that's not true. In the in the definition of a hero, in World War II, you served your country because that's what you did, and within that warfare, there were men and women who rose above the ordinary circumstances that laid their life on the line. That went above and beyond, and when they were recognized, those were the true heroes. An old 101st guy out of the Band of Brothers one time, he said, heroes, we're not heroes. The real heroes are still buried over in France. And that is so true. But just like we live in a society where we want everybody to win, we live in a society that everybody's a hero. And what it does, it it blurs true heroism. Because true heroism is a sacrifice. You take a guy like Johnson, uh, Corporal Johnson in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Uh, They're in a foxhole someplace with five or six guys and a Viet Cong throws a hand grenade in. He jumps on it, absorbs the blast and, and saves his guys but gives his own life. That's a hero. But just putting on a uniform doesn't make you a hero. But we've lost that value today. And I think sports are good because of the fact that you kids need to learn that in life, you're going to lose sometimes. Amen. It ain't always going to be the way you want it to be. And when the world prepares you not to lose and always to win, you're going to have some issues in life down the road, I promise you. <clears throat> it's, just, it's just the way that it is. I think that it's an incredible balance of development in your life. I'm glad in my heart for my for my own grandkids. They're they're sports guys. I mean, they really are. I mean, uh, Maddie. Uh, she's in track. Uh, Kendi's in track. They both play volleyball. Little Macy, she's she's a volleyball player. She's a very good little volleyball player. Uh, I watch them. I watch them run track. I, I think it's I think it's great. I just I mean it really makes I know it makes their parents heart glad and Barb's heart glad. It makes my heart glad. But it gives them a sense of purpose and a balance. I mean I like kids who know where they want to go in life. Maddie wants to be a nurse. Kenzie wants to be a doctor. Macy wants to be a veterinarian. I I think that's great. I got a nurse that can take care of me when I'm old. I got a doctor I can get my prescription pills from, and I got a vet for my dogs. I'm good. (laughs) Now, I don't know that they'll fulfill all that, but you know what? Your kids need to have a purpose in life. And And that's what I love about the kids here. I mean, i just tell you what, we have some incredible kids. And, uh, you know, I could brag on you all day long. And you can be proud of the fact that your kids do great things. I mean, I think it's good for them. They need to have that, that you're proud of them and you're actually happy with them. And I love when they come up here and, you know, Colton hit a home run, his sister hit a home run, you know, a Joe's boy hit a home run. Everybody gets up here, and I think that's great. And I think that those things are really important. And I think that when you, you get an award like the Arts Award into the Honor Society or you get your, you know, your lawyer gets you out of your DWI, I think those are wonderful things. <laughs> You know, on Mother's Day, we always recognize the oldest mother. We had fun with that, 90 some years old. Tell you how you learn wisdom. Years ago, when I was just a young preacher, I thought it was a smart thing to recognize the oldest mother, but then recognize the youngest mother until a girl 13 years old came up to get the flowers. So we changed that, and uh, (laughs) you learn. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I only make a mistake like that one time. <coughs> and I want to talk to you a moment. <coughs> I'm going to tell you something. <coughs> the greatest gladness that you're going to have in your heart with your children and blessing will not be on the ball fields of life. Amen. But when they do their first devotion, yes, sir. Yes, sir. when they first disciple somebody, Amen. when they first take that first prayer group, <coughs> when they go down to the mission and give their testimony. You know, AJ's been down there many times, and I know a lot of you young guys who are down there. Have you ever noticed how that, unless your name is Bubba, (laughs) they love Bubba. Bubba could go down there and say anything, and they love Bubba. The rest of us, usually a fight breaks out, (coughs) somebody (laughs) argues with you about something. (coughs) Not when young guys go down there. You know why? And it's a great phenomenon because when a young kid goes down there and gives his testimony or even preaches like some of you have, every eye is on you, and they're with you. They amen you. You know why? Because they all know that there was a day in their life they were just like you, and now they're not. And they thank God that there's still some kids out there that are doing the right thing when they know that they didn't. And they probably, if you could talk with them, would give everything that they have to go back and be where you're at. That's why the Bible says it's very clear that there's a value in young men and young ladies being godly Christians. And I'm telling you, uh, it's crystal clear, sparks are great and they're very important, and I'm 100%, but they will not compare with the word of God and the wisdom that you get from your child making good choices in life. And I'm telling you, you want to have the gladness in your heart, it's a balance. I'm all for it. But you know what? I love when my little grandkids run track, but I also love when I walk down a little Macy's doing a prayer group. Amen. Or getting up and giving a testimony. Or watching one of your kids get up and give a testimony. Watching one of your kids preach. Watch them get up or watch them down there. You ought to see them down there on the street. I've seen them before down at the bus stop where maybe a couple of guys were witnessing to somebody and some of our little high school girls, junior high girls were over here in a little circle praying for those people. Now that makes your heart glad because those are the foundational things that you want to build (coughs) that you can build on the rest of your life and watching your child use the very wisdom that you've trained them will fill your heart with gladness. The last part of verse 11 says that I may answer him that reproacheth me. Now, the the word reproacheth means or reproach means to uh, be uh, uh, inflammatory, derogatory. Somebody speaking against something or somebody. And uh, we talk about approaching somebody and then reproaching somebody is going the other way. And, uh, you know, doctrinally, again, this is so clear. This is Israel in the tribulation period you know you know from Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 where the devil goes in, you know, before the throne and he reproaches God about Job. That's what this is talking about here. And he questioned the motive by which Job loved God. And he goes on and on in the first round. He says, you know, take everything that he has and he'll curse you to his face. Well, that didn't work. So he goes back in chapter 2 when he reproaches him again and he says, touch his body and he'll curse you to his face. And that's the picture here that you've got. In over in Revelation chapter 12 verse 10, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. And it is talking about the reference to Israel in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. Really, the whole book of Job, 42 chapters in the book of Job, 42 <laughs> months in the great tribulation period. Job's in the land of Oz. That's where the Jew is in the tribulation period. Job loses everything he has. So does, Jew, uh, so does the Jew. Job gets back double at the end. So does the Jew in the book of Isaiah at the end of the second coming. I mean, it is a great doctrinal layout of the devil's hatred and his attack and his reproach on the nation of Israel, but inspirationally, what a great principle for you and for me. People in life will approach you. they 'll speak against you, they 'll attack you. And in most cases, if you 're following the word of God and doing what 's right, you, you don 't have to defend yourself if you 're following wisdom. Uh, all anybody has to do to see where you or I are at with God is to see where your kids are at with God. that 's the mirrored image. I mean, there's nothing left to be said. Nothing will lay out where a mom or a dad are with the Lord like where the kids are today with the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's Revelation 8.1 right now. There was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. (laughs) That's the truth. Hey, listen. When your kids are by your side in ministry and you work for God as a family, nothing in this world will replace that gladness in your heart and nobody... Nobody can legitimately reproach you for it. You know, I've often said, I've said this for years and years and years, that I have no excuse if I lost my kids to the world. I can't tell you, you know, the joy of of what God has given me with my my kids and, you know, and my canned kids. I mean, I thank God every day for the husbands that, you know, because my daughters needed good husbands. Maybe a handful. No, they can I mean, there's times you need to throw them down the cellar steps. I get it. <laughs> uh, and I'm telling you. And, I, you know, I thank God every day for the, the husbands that they gave them. They, they know how to deal with my girls. And I told them when we got married. And then he got married. I said, look, they're a handful, and here's what you got to do. And I, I thank God for it. I mean, uh, you know, and I've seen families where, <clears throat> you know, you thought you got a Boaz, but you wind up got a dumb Laughter. <clears throat> or lazy ass <laughs> or stupid ass <clears throat> if I died right now and i am not got a death wish or anything I'd like to stick around for a little while but if I died right now one of the things that I'd be absolutely content with is the fact that, that I know that my family will carry on any ministry that we have and uh, they'll be here and, uh, you know, they won't always do it the way I did it, just like you won't do it when I'm gone. You know, I mean, you'll have to take over responsibilities. You won't do it the way I do it. Uh, nobody's looking for that. I'm just looking that you do it. Amen. Amen. But we work as a team. I'm working on three generations now. I'd like to stick around for four or five. I probably won't, but, but I, you know, and I've watched that in your families. I've watched some of you guys and gals come in, and you're... Your history before you got here was not where it needed to be. When you came here, you saw the valley of the truth, and now you are breaking that cycle within your family that you're working on your first, your second, and you're going to make sure that from this point on, your family generations are going to be everything that God wants them to be. Now, guys, let me just tell you something. I'm going to be very honest. I'm saying this to every guy here. Don't take credit for it because most of it will go to your wife. She'll do the work. While you're out evangelizing the world and leaping tall buildings that are single bound and going faster than a speeding bullet, they're the ones that are home taking care of the kids, Amen. giving them that foundation. I get it. Praise the Lord for it. Amen. Uh, but I have personally no excuse if I would have lost my kids to the world. And I want to give you two reasons because I think there are two reasons that you need to understand this morning. First of all is the Word of God. The Word of God is like to salt in the Bible, And salt is a preservative. And when you get into your Bible and you look at history, you'll find that the greatest nations on this earth were the nations that had the King James Bible. And through that, God preserved them while they had it. The greatest one is England. The second greatest is the United States. Both were the only two nations that, uh, really America uh, and England, were the only two nations in history that held onto that book for any length of time. And as long as they did, the blessing, not only did they have the blessings of God, but they had the preservation of God. Hey, in 1588, Spain wanted to come up and take England back uh, under Philip of Spain. And she wanted to make England a Roman Catholic state uh, again, which she once was, but they broke with Henry VIII. And so what she did is England didn't have a navy, and and Spain Spain did. She was the greatest nation on the planet, and she had a great armada. And she swung up into the English Channel to take England who had the book and who were God-fearing people and God was going to use them uh, in just a few short generations to take the Bible around the world four or five times. But the devil's bringing his group up and he's going to take them. And right in the English Channel, without a navy, without any... A way to defeat them, God whipped up a hurricane in the English Channel and sank the whole Spanish Armada. You know why? Because they had a book, and God will preserve a nation as long as they have that book. This is why America was the greatest nation for so many years. This is why England was so great. This is why they said that the sun never set on the English soil, and she's a little island nation over there, and yet she had the whole world under her. Why? Because God preserved her. And the Word of God is like salt. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says that the salt, if it loses its savor, and that's what's happened. That's right. Salt is a preservative. it preserves preserve a country, it'll preserve you, Amen. and it'll preserve your family. That's right. But if the salt loses its savor, if it ceases to be the preserving aspect, then you're in trouble. Uh, the very men who laugh at the King James Bible as the preserved word of God, you note on them. Look look at them. The very guys who would laugh at you and me for believing that book today are the same very guys who have lost their kids to the world. Amen. You know why? Because there'll be no preservation of your family without the book that God has preserved for you. You're too stupid to see that. I don't know how that translates into... Manion, but here uh, we go. My advice to you is to stay with the book. But let me give you another piece of advice. Just don't keep the book. Let it change you. That's right. That's right. Let it do its perfect work in you. Having the Bible without allowing it to change you is like a gun without any bullets. The principles of the Word of God form a principled life, and you transfer that into your children And when your children follow the wisdom that you gave them, it makes your heart glad. Second thing, in almost 50 years of ministry, honestly, I've seen every mistake a parent could make in destroying their child and launching them to the world. And I've said it many times, I, I don't have an excuse Uh, and I, am telling you, and I said this earlier without any doubt, the attack today will be on your family and the devil will not miss a chance to grab your kids. And I also said this earlier, when it comes to your kids, in most cases, you only have one shot to get it right. The last thing you want to do when you're flying an airplane, when you're coming in for a landing is you want to do what they say and you don't want to get a, you don't want to get behind the plane. In other words, you want to stay on tack. You don't want that landing strip coming up where you got to do a lot of things to correct the mistakes you made so you can make a safe landing. And when it comes to your kid, you want to stay ahead of it. You don't want to get to the place where you got to run and catch up and change a lot of things that you should have changed to try to make it work now because you didn't do it when you should. I'm just telling you and i've seen many times over the years parents will drive their kids right up to the devil's front door and let them out and then <laughs> and then wonder about what happened now you know in a, another spiritual application of this along with that but as your pastor you know i know i am a spiritual father to many of you just like paul was to timothy and i i, I look at you young couples and all the new babies and I look at you midlife parents who have come in now, maybe your kids are, you know, they're 8 or 9 or 10 or maybe even they're teens. And you've now realized the power of the Word of God and you have corrected your life and you're going to put it together and you're doing everything that you need to do. And, uh, you know, I've watched you get it. And how through the Word of God, you know, uh, you recognizing that it's preserved Word of God for you you're seeing it work through your family. And I'm not saying you don't have some issues you got to work on. But I want to say that I saw the change in you. I saw you come in who didn't care anything about it or loved God but didn't have any truth, didn't have any principles, didn't have any guidelines in life. And suddenly it's like somebody turned the lights on in your world. And now you see the truth, you see what it needs to do, and you've made the corrective steps in your life, and I've seen you in your spiritual growth, I've seen your spiritual wisdom develop, and I want to tell you, as your father in the Lord, it fills my heart with gladness Amen. to see you and your kids coming right along, that in this church we can, as I say it all the time, lose not one more kid to the world. That's right. That's right. You got it. And, you know, as your spiritual father, it makes me glad. And I, I'm telling you, you know, you're going to have some issues with them. Sure you are. Most parents don't have any accountability system with their kids. They don't have any foundation they're building. They certainly don't have a church that cares about their kids. You have everything here that you need that if you do your part, Proverbs chapter 22 is a guarantee in your life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, let me tell you something. Over the years, some of the most hypocritical, sanctimonious, judgmental, unforgiving Christians in this world who approach you and judge you and they have lost their whole families and you still got yours. You remember I said last week that God will not only always give you enough for what you need, but he'll always give you some leftover baskets. And those leftover baskets will be for your kids. All right. So you want to stay with the book. For it will stay with you and it will preserve you and your family. But again, you want to allow it to change you. Just staying with the book, having the book, coming to church without the preaching and the teaching and the book impacting the change in your life does nothing. God's got your back when nobody else does. And believe me, I'm 100% sure of it. You take care of him and his book and he'll take care of you and your family, but the key is change. That's right. You have to allow that book to do in your life first what God intended it to do. Verse 12 says, "...a prudent man foreseeth the evil and, and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished." Now, a doctrinally, quickly again, so you can get this down. obviously, this is the tribulation context. The simple ones here will be found in Proverbs chapter five and Proverbs chapter seven. The Bible says he's a, he's a young man void of understanding, and he gets hooked up with a strange woman, which we know is the Roman Catholic Church through Ahab and Jezebel, and he gets destroyed. That's Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Uh, he's the fool in Proverbs. He has no understanding. But the prudent man, the wise man, sees it coming. This will be the man of Proverbs chapter 2 who gets the knowledge of God. The prudent man, he sees it coming, Matthew chapter 24. He gets out of Jerusalem and he hides in the rock city, Petra, runs into the wilderness, Revelation chapter 12. And there God has a place for him and preserves him and takes care of him. And this is talked about and laid out in many places in the Bible. And it will be the basis for the book of Proverbs. In a doctrinal sense, the wise man and the foolish man. Well, I'd right, get that out of the way. Now let's get to it for you and for me, because there's some great things here. Simply, for the Christian, having the ability to see what's coming before you have to face it. You know, I feel terrible about the the tornadoes that have swept this country, especially in. In Kansas and, and even in Missouri, and I watched last week as just out of nowhere that monstrous E4 tornado come in and destroy those those people's lives and I Honestly, I I can't think of anything that is probably more devastating, other than maybe losing your family, being killed in it, but coming back and seeing everything that you had in your house gone, everything that you valued and treasured just scattered all over the place. And yet I marvel at the fact that that no one was killed. Exactly. We had some people injured, but no one was killed. And most people don't think about why that is. That's because, as the weather forecasters told us, that most of these people had 45 minutes to get ready before that tornado hit. The radar... They call it Doppler radar, show them the tornado, where it was coming, when it was going to come, the direction it was coming, and they have models for these. And they knew exactly when it was going to hit. In fact, many times you'll see it on your TV. It's going to hit here at 715, here at 730, here at 745. It right down the line. They can predict it. And nobody got killed because they had 45 minutes warning that something bad was coming. I haven't thought to myself, you know that's exactly what the Bible will do for you in the principles. You know why you don't have to get destroyed in life of this world? Because the Bible is your radar unit. Amen. I've seen planes try to land, you know, and, uh, in the, and I've been on planes. And, man, they're coming down through the soup that is absolutely scary to me. I mean, I'm hoping this guy on the other end knows what he's doing. Because you can't see a thing, and they're right on course, and all of a sudden, 50 feet off the ground, they break out of the soup, and there's the runway right there. If you didn't have that radar system, if you didn't have that thing going for you, I want to tell you something, you'd never be able to land. If you did, you'd be smashed into the ground. Those guys can be up there and tell that guy how high he is, where he's going, where the runway is, turn left, turn right, stay on course, you're in the glide path, you're over the outer markers, touchdown. You know in life the Bible does the same thing for you? When the fog of this world, you can't see through it, and you're trying to get your feet on the ground and you can't do it, you know what the Bible does? It'll be that radar unit that'll absolutely tell you where you're at and where you're going and what to do when you can't see what to do yourself. Yeah. You know, they got sonar in submarines. We can be off the Grand Bank someplace and over there in Poliana where the Russian subs is. When one of those Russian subs sails out, we may be 1,500 miles away. We can hear it on sonar. Not only do we hear it on sonar, we know by the noise that they have cataloged in their computers, that the noise of the props make, they can tell you exactly what submarine it is. It's incredible what man's technology can do for advance. We got NORAD. NORAD is up there in Alaska and they're all around the place and they got these early warning systems that if the Russians ever lost a bird or they ever, a plane, I mean, they'll know it long before it ever gets there. It's absolutely incredible. And yet the Word of God does the same thing for you. It's our early warning system to tell us where we need to be and how we need to stay away from some things. Right. It's simply having the ability to see what's coming your way. In the Bible, it's called insight. It's called discernment. It's called perception. It's called wisdom and understanding. It's called discretion. And in life, sometimes people, I get it, they'll be true victims. I Not very often, but they are. Uh, They'll get mugged, God forbid they'll get raped, they'll get shot, they'll get beat up, they'll get robbed, they'll get carjacked, they'll get kidnapped. And a lot of it, honestly, I mean, there is no safe place in this world today. I mean, you used to be able to go to church, now they'll walk in here and shoot you. I mean, you used to be able to go to a mall, they're going to blow that up. You see, how to go for a walk in a crowded place. Somebody will drive a bus into you. There's no safe places on this earth anymore. The only safe place you have is in Jesus. I'm telling you. And you can't always stop that from happening unless you got your concealed carry. And my advice to that is you're dumb enough to pull it. You better be man enough to use it but one of the great principles that will, they will teach you. And they have these classes, you know, to keep you from getting mugged, raped, shot, whatever. And, I mean, there's no way you're going you're gonna to stop it all the time. But you know the number one thing they'll tell you? Always be aware of your surroundings. Look around you. My lieutenant used to say as the sun was going down, okay, boys, ears up, eyes open. You've got to pay attention. You look for bad scenarios. You look for bad circumstances before you get into them. If you're walking home and you've got a, a, a way that's a little longer with lighted, but you can take a shortcut through a completely dark alley, that might not be a good idea. Unless you've got guys clearing the alley for you and head of you. And, and, and you and I as the child of God with the word of God, we, we, we have. We should, we should be able to see what's coming to avoid it. I always teach you look behind, look around, and look ahead. See what's behind you, look what's around you, and look what's coming your way. I mean, the man who can clearly remember the course of history can easily predict the course of future history. Are you kidding me? And the Bible will will, will have every issue, situation, scenario that any man will ever face laid out for you uh, with all the warning signs. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about the fact that these things are in samples and examples and they're our admonition for us. I mean, you can look at Adam and Eve and you can find out why the, how the devil is going to attack to take your Bible. You can look at Cain and Abel. You can look at Jacob and Esau. You can look at Abraham and Sarah. Joseph and his brethren. Abraham and Lot. Lot and his kids. Lot and his wife. There's your family for you. And the great principle there is, you know what? Changing geographical locations don't solve your problems. I want to tell you something. The problem wasn't getting Lot out of Sodom. The problem is getting Sodom out a lot, right. Right. but that required change. Right. See, we want to run from church to church, from place to place, and all. But what we don't want to do is stay one place and change what's wrong with us. Amen. See, right. no, no, Amen. that's the lot family syndrome. Absolutely. and And study it how that worked out. You got Samson. You got Jephthah. You want to find out how to lose your kids? Study Jephthah. You got Hezekiah, he's a good one. He got a disease in his feet, walk with God. Instead of going to God, he went to the psychiatrist and he got killed, he died. You got Solomon, you got David, you got Israel in itself, you got Peter and Paul. I mean, it's endless. And we we won't learn from them and we certainly won't allow what we see knowing that it can come our way change us. I mean, I get up Sunday morning, and they're on the news. Man shot down at 63rd Paseo, 4 a.m. in the morning. You know what my first thought is? What on earth have you got to do at 4 a.m. in the morning at 63rd Paseo? I had a guy say one time, would you hear that so-and-so got killed last Sunday night? And I say, no, no, she was in a bad car wreck, and she got killed. What do you think about that? I think if she'd have been in church Sunday night, she'd still be alive. That's what I think about it. You know what? The places we put ourselves in, the things that we get ourselves in. You know, old Samson had a mission from God. God wanted him to be a a Nazarite, under the Nazarite vow. And as a Nazarite, there were some things he could not do. He could not touch a dead body. He couldn't eat anything from the vine tree. And uh, he, uh, he had to let his hair grow long. And so he's bebopping along one time and he, he wants to go see his girlfriend. And uh, so you know what he does? He says, well, I know a shortcut through a vineyard. Now, a vineyard has grapes and he was supposed to stay away from the grape place. But he cut through the vineyard. And when he found the vineyard, got through the vineyard, there was a lion. And the lion, he killed the lion because was a big strong man. But when he killed the lion, he touched the dead body and he lost the right. And I'm going to tell you something. When you go to the vineyard and you go the wrong way home, the devil's always going to meet you there. Right. It's just the way it works. You ought to learn from that. The Bible says in light of Proverbs chapter 27, verses 11 and 12, it says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, flee useful lust. That's Jotham That's right. with, his, with, with, pot, with the, the woman there, Potiphar's wife. You got uh, make no provision for the flesh in Romans chapter 3, verse 14. That's Jacob and he got, give no place to the devil, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. That's Samson. And the prudent man foreseeth the evil and he hideth himself. But the simple passes on and are punished. You know, some people will not allow the Bible to change who they are. They have the right Bible. That's not the problem. The problem is they got the right Bible, but they got the wrong attitude about the right Bible. Amen they're great at, at you know at, at judging everything and everybody else but they'll never just stop and judge themselves. Uh, they're all all their Christian life they could give advice to others they just can't take it for themselves. They can lay out Daniel, they can lay out the millennium, they can lay out the second coming, they can disciple, they can teach Sunday school, they can be a deacon, they can preach, all of those things. But could never see what was coming their way uh, in their marriage and their kids or even themselves. Let me tell you something. I preach the book to you the way I do for one main reason. I know there's a lot of reasons for it, but if you want to boil it down for one reason, I preach the book to you the way I do for one reason. I know it will work for you. It'll take care of every issue in your life, in your family, 100%. If you love it, it will preserve you in spite of our stupid mistakes in life. If you love it, it will preserve your family and your kids, your marriage, your job, your whole life if you just recognize that God gave it to you so you can see what's coming before it hits you and you could change about yourself what you needed to change. But you have to allow it to change you first. I, I deal with people all the time with problems, you know, husband and wife relationships, kid relationships. And I have sat there while the woman wanted to complain about the husband. And I'm not telling you, the husband was an idiot. And then he'd start off, and I'm telling you, she was an idiot. They both were right. They're just approaching it the wrong way. And I tell them, I said, look, ma'am, you're never going to, you're never gonna. You can you can be who you are and and do what you said today and have an attitude to him all your life. And sir, you can have an attitude to her all your life. But I'm gonna tell you something. That will never change anything. You want to change your husband, ma'am? Then change yourself. Right. Sir, you want to change your wife? Quit rambling on her and change yourself. Because fixing any problem is not you fixing the other person. It's fixing your problem. That's right. And going into any situation in life that you and I don't think we don't have issues that need to be changed, you are fooling yourself. And I'll tell you something else. You want to fix your kids? Quit blaming it on everybody else. Quit saying, well, my kid, you know, he's the way he is because he got hanging out. I had a couple one time. They had a both had boys and they were just you know, worthless kids. And and, 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 the, and the mom used to say to me, you know, I, I, I just, my boy wouldn't be where he's at if it wasn't for so-and-so. And then the wife of the other guy said, well, my, my husband wouldn't be where he's at if it wasn't for that kid. The bottom line is, they needed to fix themselves because they were the problem. You can't go through life blaming your children's mistakes on somebody else. You know where it starts? It has to start with you. It has to start with you. You want to fix your kids? Fix yourself. And God take care of the rest. I've seen moms and dads. Boy, have I seen this. I've seen moms and dads make a mess out of their kids. And their kids are way out in the world. And the kids now, those kids will have their own kids, grandkids. And they'll be totally want nothing to do with the little grandkids. And I've watched mom and dad take those little grandkids in and have to raise them because the kids that they had won't do it. And you know what? I've watched those grandkids go the same way that the other kids did. You know why? It's a noble cause that you're going to raise those kids. But you know what? If you're not going to fix the problem in your life that messed up your first kid, you're just going to mess up the second bunch of kids. In other words, the problem is you. It's not the kids. you got to change yourself. You got to realize you know what I made some mistakes the last round. I ain't going to make them again. That's right. We won't do it. I have had a conversation this week about a gal that came to this church for a while. <clears throat> it, it's immaterial, but you know she was a she, she. was someone who was she was she was looking for um, somebody just to um, she could get money from. She would get she just went from guy to guy to guy. Got into a relationship, took everything that they had. Got money from them, got them to pay for everything, you know, flashed them big eyes, you know, and smiled and and told them everything that they want to hear. And you know, and this and this wasn't Boaz, now this was Dumbass. And uh She's went from guy. I mean, I get you know, I get little updates. She went from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy to guy, and that's all she does. And, you know, and I, and I understand that, and I could care less about that because that's the way life is. But you know what the tragedy is? She's got some little kids. And those little kids you might as well take right now and stamp in their forehead, headed for hell, because that's where they're going. I've seen moms and dads get so into such sin, into such problems, into such things that they lose their kids. And you know what? The tragedy is they go on with life, they have this, but you might as well mark in those kids' forehead headed for hell. Because as the Bible says, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. That's right. There has to be a place where you clear off a spot and you say, This is my place. I ain't moving from here. And there's always something that you can do. And when you follow wisdom and make good choices, it makes our Father's heart glad right. in his heart. And nobody can reproach that. Dr. Ruckman used to say, and boy, if anybody was clobbered and criticized more about his stand that he took for the book and, and character assassination, it was him. But you know how he looked at it? He talked to me one time. We were, talking, we were driving someplace, and he says, you know what? And I asked him, I said, Pete, how, said he, I said, Brother Pete, how do you do it? And he says, well, he says, you know what? Every time a person attacks me, God dumps another blessing on me. Amen. That's the right way to look at it. Amen, Amen. And that is so true. I mean, Israel was told over 3,000 years ago in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou, thou goest. And you know what? That, that's still in force today. You stay the course, you stay in the book, you do what's right, you let it change you, you got nothing to worry about. Somebody said one time, well, I'm even worried about even young couple got married and they said, you know, I'm even worried about even having kids with the world the way that it is, how wicked it is. I want to tell you, the world's always been wicked. If that's your line of reasoning, you're out of line. I mean, I don't care how bad the world is. The bottom line, it says, occupy till I come. Okay. I don't care how bad the world is. The end of the day is, you know what? The Bible is still the Bible, and it'll, the, the wickedness of the world will never outdo the Bible. Yeah. And whenever you do the Bible, the Bible will preserve you no matter how wicked the world gets. And personally, I don't think it's any wicked. is wicked now than it was back in 1200. I mean, back in 1200, when you believe the Bible, they cut your head off. They put you on a the rack. They put hot irons in your eyeballs and cut your tongue out. Anybody getting that today? Sometimes people just want an excuse not to do what's right. And David said in Psalms 1 verse 3, he says, about the man who found wisdom, who made his father's heart glad, he says, he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, there's your family, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And then he says in the next verse, what a great word, the ungodly are not so doesn't work for them. That book and you require three things, really four things. But the first three all start with L and match up. The last one doesn't, so we'll just throw it in. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to love it. Second thing you've got to do is you've got to learn it. And the third thing you've got to do is you've got to live it. And when you love it, and when you learn it, and you live it, it'll change who you are. Right. It'll change everything about you. And it'll preserve you and your family and your life. And it'll make the far, far heart of your father glad. And I'm telling you, the greatest thing that God ever gave you, anybody ought to be able to figure it out because it's the number one thing the devil wants to take from you is the Word of God. Yep. And that book God gave you because he knows it's salt and it'll preserve everything about you. It'll preserve you, your family. It'll preserve your ministry. It'll preserve anything that you've got in your life because that's what the book does when you love it, you learn it, and then you live it. Well, we'll hold up there.